0: All right. Verse 35. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place, so again, notice the role of mediator here for the temple, and then consider how Christ is our one true mediator, and he is the fulfillment of the temple, that to which the temple points. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name, and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Alright? So, military defeat is seen as the judgment of God. And... Uh, no rain and thus famine is seen as the judgment of God so when when the people of Israel see these things they repent they return to the Lord Um, Solomon's prayers that the Lord would hear them and forgive and then grant uh, grant mercy manifest in rainfall and in defense against enemies Verse 37, if there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew, I mean, all of those things wipe out crops and result blight and mildew wipe out uh, crops, um, causing a famine. Or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive, and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers." Just such a beautiful statement. I mean, you can, you can practically hear an apostle or a preacher saying, you know, what Solomon says of the temple, saying of Jesus. Or you can hear Jesus saying it about his cross. <laughs> you know, there's different ways to think about this. There's a, a nice fluidity and imprecision. But, but the type remains you know whenever we find ourselves with these temporal consequences of our sin and many many are now expanded and listed here we pray and plea toward the mediator which in this case is the temple but in the ultimate sense of course is only our lord jesus the one mediator between god and man and we pray toward him um, I love this, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, that's, that's regarding the, the sinfulness that he has done and repenting of the sins, honestly and with integrity, stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear and forgive. And then here verse 39 I think is, is very beautiful, very nuanced. <clears throat> and it also trims us of this idea of this kind of cookie cutter repentance and cookie cutter grace as if it's just all sort of the same suburbia where all the houses look exactly the same all the repentance is exactly the same all the forgiveness is exactly the same Um, we need to strip ourselves of this idea and a verse like this really helps us with that then here verse 39 then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know see there can be a difference and a disparity based on god who reads the hearts of men i mean in in lutheranism as of late we've just had again this overly simplistic approach where it's like god reads the hearts and they're all sinful they're all desperately wicked and that's it and then he just grants grace to all and that's it Um, And, you know, while there's truth and veracity and a use for that kind of paradigm, uh, there's a very different paradigm at work here. And one that we run the risk of denying if we just simply hold to the one side of the coin without accepting the other. And this is the other side of the coin, namely that God knows each and every human heart and he knows each one of us intimately. He knows when we're playing games with him. He knows if we're mocking him. He knows if we're deceiving ourselves and trying to deceive him. He knows when we are genuine. And uh, the prayer here is that he would simply act to us in a, in a way um, that bespeaks that knowing. It's a, there's a very, like a pastoral relationship here to the utmost and to the nth degree where no human pastor can fully know our heart, even if we share it with him the way that the Lord knows our heart, even if we don't share it with Him. So there's this beautiful prayer, part of the prayer, forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Um, here we are in 1 Kings and 1 Samuel, and I mentioned this in the earlier class in the Old Testament reading um, for this coming Sunday, 1 Samuel. You'll recall how, um, the prophet is there choosing between the sons of Jesse, and he looks at the firstborn, and I think it's the first three, and sees that they would all be perfect kings. And God says, no, um, not these. And he says, the, you know, the ways of God are not the ways of men. The way that God sees things is not the way a man sees things. For God reads the heart, while man just the outer person. So that's very much, very much similar and parallel here. Where Solomon says, you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Purpose clause, that they may fear you. I mean, that's so that each and every one of us may just acknowledge our nakedness before God and be completely honest with him and without guile or deceit. And just simply confess what is. All the days that they live in the land and that you gave to our fathers. Okay, verse 41. Likewise, This is a really interesting tangent. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, and here we're talking about a Gentile. This is the prefigurement of the bringing in of the Gentiles, of which um, Paul is just shocked and amazed, along with the apostles in the first century, that it's come to such fullness and such universality that the whole world is invited to this salvation. But here we glimpse it in nascent form in the Old Testament when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm you know his compassion and his love and his protection for his people they're going to hear of this when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Ah, now you can see how this is to be a house of prayer for all people. Remember how Jesus says that? You've made it into a den of thieves, but it's to be a a house of prayer for all nations. So that even when foreigners, Gentiles, pagans, come and call upon your name at this temple you would hear them and be merciful to them isn't that exactly like our lord jesus we're all called to do the same thing to come to him as foreigners and to confess our sins and offer our prayers and make our requests known and he has mercy and forgives us and hears our prayer and answers it's this beautiful foreshadowing of the fullness that we now have in christ jesus found all the way back here in the old testament again we're in roughly uh the the 900s B.C. So when he comes, I'm in the middle of, uh, well, toward the end of 42. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. What is Solomon praying for? The salvation of the whole world. He's praying that this this temple would be an instrument by which all the people of the world may come to to know God, to be forgiven by God, to be heard by God, to hear of his glory, uh, and to come knowing his name, fearing him, just as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Okay, so you can see then how this prefigures our Lord Jesus. Verse 44 If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, Then hear in heaven their prayers and their plea, and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Ah, here's a great statement of original sin, of of the fall of the human race, that there's no human being who is sinless, of course, save our Lord Jesus, but that's not in view here. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them is that a period yet nope for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of egypt from the midst of the iron furnace okay so much packed in here and so i mean not really in terms of breadth But really, in terms of redundancy, how many different times and in how many different ways is he going to bring this up? And what on earth is is being so heavily emphasized here? Well, does not this very thing happen? Yeah. I think foremost what comes to mind would be the Babylonian captivity. When the people have so thoroughly abandoned God that he finally abandons his own temple, And they are swept up and carried off north to Babylon and are exiles there. And indeed, some of the people, a remnant of the people, do this very thing. They confess their sins, they acknowledge their violation, they plead for his grace and mercy, they repent with all their mind and all their heart. And what does the Lord in his grace and mercy do? well, raises up Cyrus and allows them to come back down and regain the land and uh, regain the temple site and rebuild the temple. And there they receive the blessing of God's presence uh, once more. So this, I think the Holy Spirit chooses to emphasize this uh, so greatly because he obviously knows what's coming and is speaking through Solomon. Um, so as to warn the people of that generation and also to give them hope. And this too is like us. I mean there's so many parallels to us because we are Christian people in a pagan land that sadly is increasingly becoming pagan, increasingly becoming hostile to us. And so we find ourselves to very much be exiles in Babylon and longing for, in a sense kind of even what used to be here um, at least at least a lot more peace and tranquility and acceptance of the christian faith um, even if people weren't practicing it um, although there to have been there seems to have been more of that in the not so distant history uh, but we can have hope we can have hope knowing that god will return and restore if not our country and our nation temporally he will return and restore us as we enter his kingdom which does not end and serve him in righteousness and blessedness and innocence forever. Okay, so. So, lengthy, redundant, a distinct lack of periods. Um, But even, even when all hope is lost and the people have been swallowed up and carried off, if they turn and pray toward the site of this temple they turn and pray towards you for your mercy have mercy on them and indeed that's exactly what we see happen at the end of the Old Testament okay um, from the midst of the iron furnace that's just simply a reference to uh, their slavery the very very harsh conditions of their slavery in Egypt and how God uh, Solomon is reminding them that, that Israel is your people, your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Verse 52, let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant. Now, the plea of your servant is very interesting language. Of course it can mean the king, but ultimately it's talking about christ uh, isaiah in isaiah you recall he is the suffering servant and so the servant is probably best understood even in this case as a, an explicit reference to christ let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people israel solomon can mean that temporally in terms of himself and his generation He means more than that, as is evidenced by his prayer. And, of course, Christ is clearly in view for all of us. Verse 53, For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant. Yeah, now we get to it, and how Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, and the new servant is going to be the mediator of a new covenant, uh, that covenant which is In the blood of his cup, as he says. This is the new covenant in my blood. And we're going to have one servant, Moses, and a greater servant yet in Christ Jesus. So, for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to your heritage, to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. All right. Well, As the uh, section break indicates here, ends Solomon's prayer of dedication, properly speaking. And we go into his benediction and blessing, which is shorter and yet somehow uh, even more substantive, even meatier. Before we do, any thoughts, any questions, anything I uh, ran too fast over in that last section? All right. Then off we go into verse 54 and following Solomon's benediction. Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. Well, maybe just a few words here. Benediction, as an aside, means quite literally good word and it's a a word of blessing and so that becomes a common use in in the Christian church. In fact, all of our services end with a benediction. Usually the Aaronic benediction, the one from Aaron, um, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, etc. So that's simply where we get the language of benediction. So Solomon is offering a good word or a blessing. We also see um, not only is this an elaborate, beautiful sanctuary, to put it anachronistically, but it is. But look at his posturing. Look at his posturing. He's kneeling. Okay, so he's kneeling, and he has his hands outstretched toward heaven. Both of these have been retained within Christendom. Um, course in the proper preface it's I don't think I don't think I frequently do it here but maybe one of these days I will it's customary to pray with arms extended that's fine Um, and good and uh, then also kneeling Um, you know we don't have the geography for it in our sanctuary yet um, but at least a communion rail and kneeler would be a good start and we're working on that so that would give us opportunity Um, yeah so so using the whole body in worship and embracing what that means in that posture, you know. I, I don't even think it's really a Germanic thing, though it gets blamed on that. I think it's more like a Gnostic thing, that you kind of walk into church and put your hands on the pew back in front of you and just try not to move, try not to express, try not to feel or sense anything, you know. It's all the word into my brain kind of idea. Um, well, if we just look at the, the rich biblical tapestry of, of worship and liturgy and use of the body and posturing of the body will be set free from all of that. So, he's kneeling, he has his hands outstretched toward heaven, um, and of course he arises from this posture, and then verse 55, he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel whoa that is that's a huge concept right there and just a stunning stunning word the rest is the presence of god in their midst the rest is the sabbath by which god is honored and points to the ultimate sabbath which is the dwelling place of god with man at the end of this life at the end of this world eternal rest In other words, eternal rest, a foretaste of eternal rest, has come into our midst in the presence of the temple. That's why Christ says, not only that he is the temple, but come unto me, ye weary, and I will give you rest. Sabbath. So I don't want to do a whole Sabbath theology here, but you remember the Sabbath, even from the Garden of Eden, on the seventh day, God rests. And so there is this rest for the people of God as they on the Sabbath day turn and pray toward the temple and they receive the rest of the God who does all for them and serves them so there's a divine service motif in here he came not to be served but to serve uh, to gird his loins and and serve the people gathered at the table of Abraham as Jesus would later put it And so there's this stunning thing. God has come to give rest to his people. Israel, a foretaste of the eternal rest which is to come. We cannot help but also reflect on the fact that when Christ is crucified, it is on the sixth day, and on the seventh day he's laid in the tomb, and there he rests (laughs) from his labors. It is complete. And then on the eighth day he rises. And that eighth day becomes the dawn of the new day and the new creation, which will eventually be a day and dawn of, of a creation which culminates in endless rest. Rest in the presence of God who does all. Joy in the presence of God who does all and is all. All right, so that just alluded to here by the Holy Spirit from the, from the mouth of Solomon and the pen of the author of First Kings. Blessed be the Lord, there's the the benediction language, the good word, the blessing. Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. So all his promises are now fulfilled in this temple. And so it was when we awaited the promise of, of his templing in the flesh, of Christ Jesus and that promise was fulfilled and now we find ourselves waiting for that promise fulfilled when he returns and brings the new heavens and the new earth but as surely as he kept the promise for this temple as surely as he kept the promise for the temple of Christ's body so surely he will also keep the temple of the new heavens and the new earth where there is no land there is no temple for the lamb is their temple you remember that from revelation on Sunday just beautiful just beautiful all right according to all that he promised not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by moses his servant verse 57 the lord our god be with us there's the there's the emmanuel language remember how the new testament picks up with that he is god with us look at the connection with the temple here the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him. Ah, here's the corresponding verse to verse 46. For there is no one who does not sin and hear that he, that God, may incline our hearts to him why because by nature our hearts are inclined away from him by nature our hearts are inclined to sin it is he who must incline our hearts to him this is exactly what we teach over and against the free will decision theology that's so popular in baptistic and non-denominational circles all you need are these two verses from solomon the wisest man on the earth to refute that entire theology And it is also what Luther teaches in the Small Catechism in Article 3 of the Apostles' Creed. To say, I believe in the Holy Spirit is also to say that I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in the Lord Jesus or come to Him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with His gifts, or in the language of Solomon inclined my heart to Jesus (laughs) inclined my heart to him beautiful beautiful statements on original sin in verse 46 and beautiful statement on um, sola gratia monergism in verse 58 that he may incline our hearts to him To walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Note again, this is not self righteousness. This is not bad theology. He knows full well that there is no one who does not sin, and yet the goal is to not go on sinning that grace may abound. The goal is to walk. Uh, in, in the way of the Lord, keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. That's the goal. Of course we will sin. Of course God will send his law and punishment. God willing, we will repent and receive his grace and mercy. God willing, he will incline our hearts to him once more, that we again seek to Walk in all his ways, keep his commandments, statutes, and rules, etc. And that is the Christian cycle, the Christian cycle of life. And it's a daily cycle where we set out to do the Ten Commandments, and at the close of the day, we repent and ask God for his forgiveness and receive that forgiveness and wake up and set out to do the Ten Commandments. And that's our daily cycle. And the weekly cycle is the same. We come before church and we say, We come into church and we say before God, I, a poor, miserable sinner, and we make our confession. We receive absolution from the pastor. We set about our lives again with renewed spirits and right hearts and clean consciences. We go to the work. We do what we can do. And by the, by the next Sunday, we're saying what? I, a poor, miserable sinner, I've, I've, you know, I may have done better than the week before. I may not have, but be that as it may, here's my confession. Please absolve me and forgive me. That's the, that's the weekly cycle of the Christian life. And this is exactly how God would have us live. And this is, this is indeed um, living with God and walking with him with all our heart as David did, and as God desired Solomon to as well. Okay, so why, why, why now? Um, that's, that's what we're getting to, that he may incline, so verse 58 once more, bear with me, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant, and the cause of his people, Israel. Again, here you can see where this is Solomon and or the king and the people. Um, but it also, in a sense, points us to Jesus and the entire Christian church. He may, may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people, Israel, as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. And here is the corresponding verse to what we found back in verses 41 through 43. Namely, that this entire intent of the temple is not only to draw Israel, but ultimately to draw all the peoples of the earth to faith in the one true God. And of course, where the temple largely fails, Christ largely succeeds. verse 61 let your heart therefore be wholly true to the lord our god walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day so again there's no cynicism here there's no you know there's no error here to say the least your heart wholly true to god is the same heart that confesses that there is no one who does not sin It's the same heart that confesses, may may you, Lord God, incline our hearts to you, otherwise our hearts will be disinclined toward you. Um, And now, may you also incline our hearts to you that we may um, hold true to you, our our, our Lord and our God, and walk in your statutes and commandments. Okay, that's the benediction. That's the blessing. So... As we march through this liturgy of the new temple, we have a blessing of the Lord, a a kind of preliminary benediction back in verse 12 and following, a prayer of dedication, which is lengthy, and then a closing benediction that we've just read. Now we get to the action of the liturgy, which are the sacrifices. So verse 62, Then the king and all Israel with him, offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Whoa. Many, many priests at work and still very, very lengthy in terms of time. Can you imagine the blood? And of course, all of this becomes a great feast. And so you see the connection between sacrifice and feast. And so we make that connection to it, the Lord's Supper. The sacrifice made once and for all and the feast of his body and blood in his supper for the forgiveness of our sins. Sacrifice and feast in the temple. Um, another thing to point out, all of the theology of Hebrews, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And did that do it? Nope. Many, many countless others sacrificed throughout all the Old Testament period. Millions upon millions of animals sacrificed and all the blood of goats and bulls could not accomplish what the blood of one man could accomplish because that one man is also God. And so the blood of true God, the blood of true man poured out on the cross for us does what all the blood of beasts cannot do. Yeah, yeah, there's tons of people, tons of people. And they're not doing the, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm hardly an expert on this, so don't press me too hard. But but they're hardly doing this kind of like butcher shop thing that we do where you get every last piece of meat, you know, and I mean, there's, there's only portions that that go out and are consumed, and, and maybe not even all of it. Maybe so, Maybe that which is not consumed is burned. That The text doesn't explicitly say, but there is precedent for that. For example, if there's leftover, uh, Passover lamb, um, you, you burn what what is not consumed, so that may be what they did, who knows okay, well s- verse 63, again Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep you know, and I think too, uh, we might interject here, probably over the course of some days, possibly even weeks, I don't know, um, it, In a minute, we're going to see that this this seems to take place in the context of the Feast of Booths. I don't want to get too tight with the timeline because I'm not sure the text even allows for that. But to say the least, this sacrifice might have taken place over the course of a week as well. Um, So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Verse 64 the same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord for there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings so Solomon held the feast at that time here's what I mean about the kind of difficult to nail down chronology and all Israel with him, a great assembly from uh, Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days. And so, you know, it seems to be, was there feasting all seven days? Yeah, perhaps so. Is there slaughter all seven days? Yeah, perhaps so. Um, the feast, if you drop down to the study note, says that this is the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. And you can go read up on the Old Testament feasts if you like. Pages 200 through 201 in your Lutheran study book, study Bible. (coughs) Okay, verse 66. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. So David here is still clearly in view, the shepherd king. Um, and yeah, the the Lord had shown to David and his servant to all his people. Oh yeah, and Solomon as the son of David. Solomon as the son of David, which of course has great impact then in the Gospels when you read Jesus identified as the son of David. Okay, that wraps up the liturgy of uh, the temple being consecrated, inaugurated, whatever you want to say. And now the Lord appears to Solomon for a second time. Chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built. Again, consecrated means set apart and established for the purposes with which it was instituted. So, I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So, again, this is the place to access the heart of God and the eyes of god and now that place is our lord jesus christ there's continuity between the temple and jesus in fact jesus is the temple moving forward so in this view there's continuity in this view there's no need to you know say that forever or for all time or um, simply in words for indefinitely they really find their fullness and climax in christ and so indeed indeed this temple that Solomon establishes becomes Christ and so still to this day and forever God has put his name on Christ his identity on Christ to see him is to see the Father and the eyes of God and the heart of God are there on Christ and for all who turn to him verse 4 and as for you if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness. Again, consider all the sins of David. But David had a repentant heart and reconciled and was reconciled to God and tried to do what was right and did what was right and failed and confessed. And and so it goes, that he lived that cycle. And look what God says about him. You know, if you will walk before me, Solomon, as David your father, walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments, now that doesn't necessarily mean like if his children turn away like absalom turned away from david then suddenly solomon loses the throne no it's more like if you remain faithful to me then you'll remain on the throne your children who sit on the throne if they remain faithful will remain on the throne that's more the sense of this so you or your children and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that i have set before you but go and serve other gods and worship them that's really the key that's really the deal breaker Idolatry, which is adultery against Yahweh, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And boy, how true that was again if we just look at the Babylonian captivity, you know, some. 400 years later. Gosh, that isn't much time when you put it that way. It's 400 years is all. I guess it seems long because those 400 years are not good years. Verse 8, And this house will become a heap of ruins everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say why has the lord done thus to this land and to this house i mean it becomes like like the wonder of the ancient world and then it's trashed I mean, just how stunning that would be and it has the opposite effect doesn't it everything that solomon prayed for is that the people would come to this temple and know the one true god and now look at this reversal like it. but if you're unfaithful this is what's going to happen and the people are going to say why has the lord done thus to this land and to this house yeah. i mean yeah it's, it's they that violated the covenant right but they hardly see him as a savior of the people and as one to whom they can cry out to so in other words for israel's unfaithfulness there's this there's this uh global impact and this worldwide impact i mean this is this is why in Exodus they're called um, a royal priesthood. You know, and if the priesthood fails, the people, the rest of the people suffer. Well, this is uh, this is weighty and weighty, especially because these things occur. why has the lord done thus to this land and to this house verse 9 then they will say because they abandoned the lord their god who brought their fathers out of the land of egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them therefore the lord has brought all this disaster on them so israel becomes a scandal and god had taken them to be the apple of his eye and the inheritance and the, the prized possession of the world because they turned their back on God they've now become the dregs and they've seen as no other nation on earth was blessed the way they were blessed and they squandered it and threw it away and I think still by parallel you know the Old Testament is so parallel to the New Testament in many respects that's unfortunately how we in the church see um, perhaps the majority portion of the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus you know it's like you had everything you can hear Paul's pain even in the first century you know you had everything you had every possible advantage and still you did not believe Paul's hope and argument is that by you Israel by you you know Jewish people of the first century rejecting Christ the Gentiles are coming in may they come in and make you jealous so that eventually you come in But sadly, and at least in terms of large scale, that that did not happen, and by all appearances, will not happen. Okay, so these are weighty words, weighty words, but especially in light of the fact that Solomon himself falls. And um, you know, the question of his ultimate salvation is, is somewhat open. I tend to I tend to hold out hope and think that he is ultimately saved. Um, but that the vast majority of his, uh, his adult life and his reign is tainted by his idolatry and the consequences that brings upon him and his kingdom, uh, you know, cannot be overstated. But doesn't he write Lamentations after that? Well, yeah, that that's goes into this theory of um, whether, or not, whether or not Solomon is in the end converted is uh, those texts that we have in Holy Scripture from him, at what point in time do those come? Um, and one could, one could argue that, um, well, I don't know. I don't wanna get into the technical argument because I'm sure that there's a technical argument, but let suffice it to say, when you're looking at Lamentations, you mentioned, is that is that him? I can't recall off the top of my head. Is that Solomon who writes Lamentations? Or is that Jeremiah? I can't recall off the top of my head. If anybody can Google that for me, let me know. Um, but yeah, even even I mean, when I taught through Ecclesiastes, we wrestled with this a little because how can you read Ecclesiastes and, and see here like an entirely fallen person, like a, a, like a faithless, godless person? Um, did anybody find lamentations? It's gonna bug me. <laughs> I've got to look it up. I don't I don't think that that is lamentations. Ezekiel, Daniel. So um, this, the study Bible will tell us. Jeremiah. Oh, it comes right after Jeremiah. So, if it's not Jeremiah, that's why I thought it was Jeremiah. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations. So, so you've got um you've got Proverbs, you've got Ecclesiastes, and you've got Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Those three known for sure, I think. And all three of those books are f- are books that exhibit faith. So, if he wrote even one of those at the end of his life, <laughs> there's there's hope. Well, yeah, yeah. I won't go into it. So, okay. Well, we've got a few minutes left. So the Lord appears to Solomon. You know, and He gives him this strict warning. Um, I, first of all, I, I mean, I guess I guess that's that's not the most accurate. He says, "I heard your prayer. I answered your prayer. I'm going to keep your prayer." But then there's also this warning that if you turn away from me, these are going to be the consequences. All right, at verse 10, we get some of Solomon's other acts. Let's just speed through a few of these um, as we close up our hour here today. At the end of 20 years, verse 10, and of course, that's seven years for the temple and 13 years for the king's palace. At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So this was the payment. As those cities profit, um, pay taxes, it goes to Hiram, and that's his, that's his payment. It's rather an ingenious uh, payment structure there, isn't it? But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Now this is peculiar and interesting. <laughs> So you kind of have two different options. Either Solomon really did short shrift him, in which case that kind of functions in the narrative to show that, hey, even though everything was glory, already Solomon's selfishness and corruption was showing through. That's probably right. Um, the other way to read it is that, is that Hiram was just bargaining for more. Because you know? <laughs> this, this was a very common way. Um, I suppose it still is to some degree today where you, you, know, you go to accept payment and you go, oh, it's this low, It's this, this is unacceptable. And you're really just trying to bargain for more. Anyway, not all is sunshine and rainbows, I guess. Either way you read it. So when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Verse 13, therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. And Kabul, as the study note says, is unproductive land. Hiram may have been haggling to profess dissatisfaction with the exchange value of the cities. Yeah, there's the one theory. The other theory is articulated, I think, elsewhere here in the study notes. Verse 15, and this is the account of the forced labor. Uh Uh-oh. The forced labor that King Solomon had drafted to build the house of the Lord. And his own house and the Millo, which we, nobody really knows, but we think it's the like the the ancient rampart used to conquer the city, like overlaid with bricks and turned into a a step stone structure. So you've got anyway his own house and the Millo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazar, and Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire, and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. I mean, here's where you could, you're poised to see that Solomon's wives are political in, in general. Um, yeah, but here's how you get a, di- a dowry. <laughs> they go wipe out another city. <laughs> Take its riches and slave its people. Happy wedding day, honey. I don't know, the ancient world was was fascinating. Okay, well, I see we're out of time. I would love to continue on, and I know we're in the middle. We'll flesh this all out and get to the bottom of all this uh, next week. The Lord be with you.